to direct your attention to are found in the book of Philemon. We're in the midst of a, a very brief series on this book. I trust this, this book, this letter, will continue to be an encouragement to you even after we've studied it. I'm going to read the section that we're going to examine today, and that's verses 8 through the second part of this letter. Philemon, verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Anesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In ordinance might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all. Or owes you anything. Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us grace as well as we examine this text. Lord, we know that all Scripture is given by God, given by you, written, so to speak, by your own hand. For Spirit, you spoke and moved men as they wrote the pen by pen in ink, the words which you would have them write. Lord, this is your word. And so we approach it with due reverence. And we thank you for it that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your will so that we might know how You would have us to live, so we would please You. And so, Lord, we, we do pray, quite simply, that You would work through Your Word this morning to bring about that end, that our lives would be more pleasing to You as we both understand it and apply it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How would you define leadership? 
Leadership is a popular topic. In fact, I think it's the, the topic that most books are written on in the world. If you go to the leadership section of a bookstore, if they have bookstores anymore, I don't know if they do, um, thanks to Amazon, um, you'll find lots of books on leadership. Well, how would you define leadership? Some of the leading leadership experts, here are some of their definitions. Kevin Cruz says, Leadership is a process of social influence which maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. So essentially he says it's social influence that works towards a goal. John Maxwell essentially says leadership is influence. Quote, leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. End quote. Bill Gates describes it as empowerment. He says, as we look into the next century, leaders will be those who empower others. Now, all of these definitions, more or less, explain leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do. Getting them to go in a certain direction. And Paul's letter to Philemon is a remarkable example of doing this biblically. Last week, last week, we looked at Paul's appreciation of Philemon, which is seen in verses 1 through 7. And this week, we're going to look at his appeal to Philemon in verses 8 through 25. And the manner in which Paul appeals to Philemon is remarkable. As you know, the aim of expository preaching, quite simply, is to clarify what a text says, what a biblical text says, and then to explain in light of what it says, what are the biblical principles in that text and therefore how do we apply the text to our life. And so I want to be really clear here. The main point that the author is trying to address is this, and it's actually seen in verse 17 when he writes, if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. The main point of Paul's letter is to get Philemon to receive Onesimus in the same way that he would receive Paul. That's the main point of the letter. What's remarkable beyond that is that all the other elements in the letter are to bring about that end. And so it's really a good demonstration of how do you get another person to do what you know God's will for them is to do or what you think God's will is for them to do. How do you lead other people biblically? Well, Paul gives a great example of that in this letter. The book doesn't really break down into a clear homiletical outline that we could use to work through the passage. I think we could force one. And because of that, I just thought, okay, what's the best way to make this text clear and the principles clear? And so I thought I would just draw out the principles that Paul demonstrates in his appeal to Philemon. And all of these principles have immediate relevance to us today as we seek to lead others, as we seek to persuade others to go in a certain direction. And we all have people in our lives whom we're trying to persuade. Christianity is in the business of persuasion. Right? We, that's, that's why we have preachers. 
in, when we share the gospel with others, we're trying to persuade them to go in a certain situation. Parents, we're trying to persuade children to pursue the Lord's will in their life. Husbands with spouses, teachers to students, friends to friends. We're trying to persuade other people to follow God's will. And in this passage, Paul gives us ten principles that can guide us in seeking to lead other people into God's will. And they're listed for you in your outline and on the screen. And I want to just begin by the first one that's mentioned there. We can appeal to others rather than command them. We should appeal to others rather than just simply command them. Paul writes in verse 8, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, obviously, there's a time and a place when a person in authority will find it necessary to give a direct command, to give an order. That may be the the best thing to do at that moment. But generally speaking, especially when a Christian is seeking to persuade another Christian, I think more ground will be gained when we just simply appeal to them to do what is right rather than order them. And so when Paul says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, he's he's frankly acknowledging that he has the authority as an apostle to tell Philemon exactly what to do. He has the authority to do so. But he chooses not to use that. Because instead of leaning on his authority, he wants to appeal to him as a friend. He wants to appeal to his friend's heart. In fact, he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He wants to to treat him as a friend rather than as a subordinate. And I think this, this principle of appealing to one another doesn't just work from a leader to a subordinate. It, it actually can work the other way around as well. For instance, my wife will sometimes appeal to me in this way. You have the freedom, Joseph, to cancel that meeting you want to cancel and watch the football game that you prefer to watch instead. But is that what the Lord would be pleased by? What would most honor the Lord? Now, in doing so, she's not manipulating me. She's not being passive aggressive because that appeal has nothing to do with her. But she's wanting me to make a choice that's most honoring to God. Rather than to make a choice that would be where my flesh would be inclined. So often I think we're going to find it better to appeal to others rather than just to simply command them. Secondly, we should humble ourselves before others. As Paul does in verse 9. When he describes himself as an old man and a prisoner, what he's doing is he's putting himself in the position of lowliness. Old men in the ancient world naturally had authority. Back then, people actually honored and respected their elders. Just think about Jacob's authority late in life that he had over his 12 sons, even though they were grown men as well. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Right? Treat him with a, a certain amount of respect because by virtue of his age, he even has authority. And Paul's not only old, he's an apostle. 
And not just an apostle, but he's a prisoner because of his submission to Christ. He's a prisoner on account of his following Christ. And he's lowering himself before Philemon in making his appeal. Again, he could just order him, but he doesn't. He appeals to him and he reminds him, I'm an old man and I'm a prisoner for Christ. Listen to what I'm saying. He's pleading. In fact, this is the same reason why historically men, when they ask for a woman to marry them, will take a knee. In essence, they are begging them, appealing to them on bended knee to consider marriage. The posture of the proposal is a way of signifying the kind of leader that they're going to be. One who values the relationship so much that they're going to humble themselves as they seek to persuade their wife to make a certain decision. And a wise woman would consider the manner in which the, the man asked this question. Likewise, we should humble ourselves before those who we seek to lead. Thirdly, express personal interest and affection in others. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. The verses here, verses 10 through 12, are loaded with expressions of affection for Onesimus, who's Philemon's slave who's run away. We see the, the expression of affection in the familial imagery where Paul describes himself as his father in the faith. And he even describes him, Onesimus as his own heart in verse 12. But the parental ver- verbiage that Paul uses also signifies Paul actually led Philemon to faith in Christ while he was in prison. But the language primarily demonstrates that Paul is more than an evangelist. He's more than a pastor. He's more than an apostle. He's more than a, than a preacher. He's a lover of men. He loves people so much so that his heart is bound up in their well-being. I mean, think about how a, a, a parent feels when they drop off their oldest child for college the first time. The tension in their heart on account of the shared affection. Paul is demonstrating that's how he feels for Onesimus, who's a slave. And not just a slave, a a slave that he's only known for a short period of time. And yet already, Paul feels this, that he could describe Onesimus as his own heart. And yet, nevertheless, Paul has chosen to send Onesimus back to Philemon. It's, it's a difficult decision because of just the, 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 the amount of affection that he has for him, but also because Onesimus has been very useful to him, he says. He not only loves him, but he needs him for practical reasons. Paul doesn't list what all those practical reasons are. We could speculate. You can imagine the usefulness of a person who once was in chains, knowing what it was like to be in chains, to then serve another person who, though should be free, is now in chains. I 
As a church, we can appreciate the challenge facing Paul. And just consider the, the people who have left our body for good reasons. People who we've grown to love and appreciate and who have been useful to us. Just think of the uh, amount of music leaders we've had leave in the last few years. The Hawkins and the Eidsvogs, others. And now you're stuck with me. <laughs> and I'm the one that puts the slides together, so don't be mad at Isaiah. That's, that's all my fault. Pray for me. <laughs> Despite his strong affection and appreciation for Onesimus, Paul found it best to send Onesimus back to his master. Fourthly, don't force others, but enable them to choose what's best. Paul writes, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Again, we we see Paul appealing rather than commanding him. And this is actually how Jesus suggested that his followers would exercise their authority. Mark 10, 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you, like an apostle, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, Paul had the authority. But instead of just ordering, he prefers to appeal. And the reason he gives for why he doesn't exercise his authority over Philemon is because he wants Philemon to enjoy the joy that comes from making that decision on his own and even receive the credit for making that decision on his own. The modern day word for this, the leadership term for this would be empowerment. It's what Bill Gates was referring to when he said, in the next century, leaders will be those who empower others. In other words, good leaders don't simply tell people what to do. They empower them to make the right choice on their own. And of course, this is exactly what other great biblical leaders did as well. Right, Joshua twenty four fifteen, Joshua famously said, choose you this day. You choose this day whom you're going to serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But you choose. You make the choice. Elijah made a similar appeal to the people of Israel on Mount Carmel. He came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. You decide who you're going to serve. Jesus gave the disciples a similar choice after many left him in John 6. It says in John 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus didn't strong arm them into following him. 
He gave him the choice. To which somebody might say, oh, wait a second. You're a Calvinist. Don't Calvinists believe that God forces people to love him and obey him? Don't you believe that God in his sovereignty forces us into obedience? Aren't we just robots of God's? Absolutely not. That isn't what Calvinists believe, and it's certainly not what I believe. God doesn't force us to love him or to obey him. What he does do is he miraculously changes our hearts from being self-centered and self-obsessive to be from being self-worshippers to wanting to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. He enables us to love him, and therefore we choose to. Now, on account of Adam's sin, we're born into this world slaves of sin and, and self-worship. And so we won't choose God unless he first chooses us and enables us to love him and follow him. So he empowers us, likewise, to make the choice for ourselves. But anybody who once was blind and has had their eyes open to see the destruction and the, the shame that their self-worship has caused would no longer want to live the way they once lived, but would wholly want to live for Christ. Like when God saves us, he opens our eyes spiritually and having our eyes open, there's no other choice that we would want to make but to love him because he's truly worthy of all of our love. In the next few verses, Paul continues to demonstrate good biblical leadership as he puts the presence situation into perspective. He offers biblical perspective to Philemon when he writes, for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. It's a beloved brother. And he wants Philemon to consider the bigger picture in what has taken place. He wants him to think and recognize how God has used this situation as difficult as it might have been for Philemon to lose this slave. He wants him to see how God possibly has used this to bring about a greater good. I mean, this really echoes what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis fifty twenty: You meant it for evil, but God has brought about these things for good. It also reminds me of William Cooper's great hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And often we can't see how the suffering, the trials, the difficulties in our life, God is using for good. But we can have absolute confidence that He is. Because He said He would work all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Remember the Apostle James' commentary on the life of Job when he says in James 11, 5.11, You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, 
and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's his summary of the book of Job. And that man suffered considerably, but James says, God was working that for good. He's merciful and compassionate. God's will often includes great loss. We might even say usually. And Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 33, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. That's loss. If you are not willing to lose everything, you can't follow me. God's will usually includes great loss. God's will includes great loss, but it also has even greater good that those losses bring about. In the case of Philemon, his lost slave is returned. You know what's better than getting lost property returned? When the person returning that property is now a brother in Christ. Having that slave returned as a Christian. If a sinner is finally returns to God, all the losses we might have incurred on account of anything they did to us, if they finally come to repentance, to trust in Christ, all of the losses are worth it. Because there is absolutely nothing in the world more valuable than a soul. Right? Jesus himself implied this when he said, what, prof, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What, what shall a man give in return for his soul? I think the same could be said about any one of us. Right? What is more valuable than a person's soul? I mean, I know this church body and there are people your heart is breaking over. That you, you would do anything. You would, you would have all of your limbs cut off if you just knew your child would come back to Christ. Or if your parent would just put their faith in Christ. Because there, there's, there's nothing more valuable than that. And Paul demonstrates that and even how he treats Onesimus. He personally identifies himself with him in verse 17. He says, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And this is, this is his formal request. This is what the whole letter is about. And when he makes this plea, he makes it by personally identifying himself with this slave. So much so that he wants Philemon to recognize whatever you do to Onesimus, Philemon, you're doing it to me. In a similar way, God also identifies himself with his people. Speaking of God's relationship with Israel, Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Think about that. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. 
God brought a lot of that affliction onto Israel. Not because he enjoyed it. Because he knew it was best. It afflicted him. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells believers, Truly I say to you, as you did it, not as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Right? Jesus is the same thing. He personally identifies with every single one of his followers. What, what we, the way we treat one another, therefore, by implication, that is how we're treating Christ. The way we speak to our spouses and to our children, our coworkers. The way we treat others is directly affects Christ, is what I'm trying to say. It's what Jesus is trying to say. We saw this, right, when Jesus saved Saul of the, when he was on his way to Damascus. Came to him in a blinding light, and he, first things out of his word, words out of his mouth were, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you? I've never done anything to you. Jesus' point was, he who touches any one of my followers touches the apple of my eye. Christ loves his people. And like Christ, Paul personally identified with those he ministered to. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When he writes, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I mean, that is strong, affectionate language. Yes, Paul was one of the most formidable thinkers of the ancient world. We would love his treatise in the book of Romans. We love all of his letters. I mean, he was a force to be reckoned with, an intellectual giant, an amazing preacher, a stalwart leader. But this man loved his guts out for the people he served. I mean, that's obvious here. And it's obvious in the letter to Philemon. And knowing how deeply Paul cares about Onesimus is going to have a strong influence on how Philemon receives him. Paul is laying down the gauntlet of affection. And he's saying, whatever you do to him, Philemon, you're doing it to me. I mean, how, how, many, how many leaders do you know that love you like this? Where they would say, whatever, whatever you do, whatever a person does to you, they're doing to me. We have, we have leaders maybe that will write us letters of recommendation give personal reference calls. But how many love you like this? Or ask yourself in your leadership, would the people who follow you say that you care for them like this? Closely tied to this leadership principle is taking responsibility for those whom you lead. Paul says, if he's wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge it to my account and I'll repay it. Now, we have no idea what wrongs or debts Onesimus might have incurred. 
They were possibly significant. But Paul wants to make it clear that there should be nothing that interferes with the reconciliation of these two brothers. And therefore, he says he's willing to pay any debts that might have been incurred. Right. The point is, he's taking personal responsibility for what's taken place. Right. He's identifying with Onesimus as if he had done what Onesimus had done. He's willing to pay the price for Onesimus. Two weeks ago, when I was uh, returning on the train on the way back from Bellingham, I finally got a chance to, to finish Les Miserables, a book I'd been reading for about a year. And I think my favorite scene in that book is when the great bishop is robbed of his expensive silverware by Jean Valjean. But rather than accusing Valjean of the theft when the police bring him to his home, he tells the police that he actually gave Valjean the silverware. And not only those, but he goes and grabs two expensive candlesticks and he hands them to Valjean and says, you forgot these also. And after doing this, Victor Hugo writes, Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, obviously, a person can't literally buy a person's soul with money. But you get the point. And Hugo's trying to make a point there. That bishop wasn't going to let anything stand between this this wretched sinner being reconciled with his God. And he was willing to give up everything to see it happen. Joyfully. Just like Paul. Paul relinquishes his right to his own hard-earned money to reinstate the relationship of Philemon and Onesimus on solid ground. And just as he actively assures Philemon that he will cover any cost, he assures Philemon that he has absolute confidence that Philemon is going to do the right thing. Which brings us to the eighth principle. Express confidence in others. This assurance affirms that Paul's request is not coming from a position of doubt in Philemon, but great confidence in him. Right, he's, I'm confident of your obedience, he says. Now, sometimes when we ask other people to do hard things, we often will then follow that up with assuming the worst about them. For instance, we remind our kids that they need to finish their chores, and we follow that up with, and if you don't, these are going to be the consequences. Right? With that secondary phrase, we're communicating that we actually have no confidence that they're going to do it. Therefore, we've got to remind them of what the consequence of their failure is going to be. Right? Which communicates something to them. There's, there's a bit of condescension. There's a looking down upon them in such a, a response or request. We're assuming that they're going to choose the wrong thing to do rather than the right. 
And I think in most cases, especially with Christians, people are going to be more ashamed in failing when you've trusted them than in the consequence they receive for failing. Right? They're more afraid of failing you than they are just of the natural consequence of failure. Because as Christians, we want to be faithful. We want to honor God. We want to love people. We hate it when we screw up. It's, it's, it hurts other people. It's embarrassing. And so we want people to think the best about us. And so when we do, it, it goes a long way in encouraging others, in inspiring them to do the right thing. Again, just consider how Peter felt when Jesus looked at him in the eye after the cock throw, crowed three times. There really was no natural consequence, but he was broken because he was so ashamed of failing his Lord. The next verses demonstrate that Paul not only expresses confidence in Philemon, he also expresses his absolute confidence in God. It's the ninth point. We should express confidence in God. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, he writes, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is so assured that he's going to be released from prison soon that he actually asked Philemon to prepare a room for him to stay in. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm going on a trip, I'm going to go visit somebody. I usually don't ask them to prepare a room for me until the tickets are bought. Well, just think about this. Paul is still in prison. So why does he have such confidence that he's going to be released soon? He actually says in the text, through your prayers. His confidence is rooted in the power of prayer that are the, the prayers that are being offered on his behalf. Like prayer to Paul, it's not just some mere discipline, some daily routine, some act of spirituality. Paul understood prayer to be one of the primary means that God uses to bring about his will in this world. All right, remember what Jesus or sorry, James said in this regard. James five. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise in the form of prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'd be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What is James' point? Pray, pray, pray. No matter what you're facing, pray. Because that's what God will use to help you in the situation. Believe in the power of prayer. Why should we believe in the power of prayer? Because who are we asking to work? The one who can do whatever he darn well pleases. And he will. So pray. Pray. 
Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Stop whining and pray that God's will would be done. It, that's why Paul has, no, has complete freedom to ask for prayer. Pray that I'd be released from my chains. And then he has confidence to say, and also make sure you have a room prepared for me. Because God's going to use it. Right? Paul, Paul didn't pray with doubting, like a double-minded man. When he prayed, he prayed knowing who, knowing who he was going to talk to. Or who he was talking to. And who would receive that prayer with joy. We need to pray and express confidence in God. Consider these other prayer requests Paul made in his letters. Romans 15, verse 30. He appeals to the church in Rome saying, Strive together with me in your prayers that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. <laughs> What's going to deliver him? Prayer. He requests the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He's commanding the church to pray for him because he wants his efforts to actually be accomplished. If you're not praying for me, don't expect fruit. Is the implication. He tells the church in Philippi, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Speaking of his imprisonment. I'm going to get out of prison because you're praying for me, he says. And likewise, we need to pray for one another with confidence that God will use our prayers our petitions for one another to bring about His goodwill. And we need to pray for one another like that. Tenthly, we need to remind others that they're not alone. I get this from His sending greetings in verses 23 to 25. Because Paul reminds Philemon that there are other like-minded saints, even with him in prison, who are striving with him in their service for the gospel. And at first glance, that might just seem somewhat trivial. But it's massively significant. This is one of the reasons why we're so encouraged by the testimonies of others. And even why we can be encouraged when we hear of other people's trials. The difference a phone call can make when we're feeling dis- to know that we're not alone, that we're remembered. To know, to know that other people have been where we are, at least in some sense. Like one of, the, one of Satan's greatest weapons is to get people to feel like nobody cares and nobody can understand that you truly are all alone. And that even God doesn't care. But when you know another believer has even a taste of what you've gone through, man, it can be the world. To know I'm remembered, even, even to know that my significance is important at least to someone. 
I mean, as you guys know, Jason came to Christ because a saint chose to write letters to him on a daily basis while he's in prison. I love that saint. Just, just reminding him, you're not alone. You're not forgotten. Don't underestimate the power of just communicating that to somebody. But notice also, it's not only other saints who remember Philemon, but most importantly, Christ is with him. Look at verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When we remember that precious promise that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, right? that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ, when we remember those truths, then we also remember, likewise, that we can be more than conquerors through Him who loved us. When we, when we recognize that truth, I mean, that's what's going to inspire us to continue on despite whatever opposition we might face, despite whatever encouragement that we're being bombarded with. Like, that is the greatest hope you can offer anyone in the world, that you are not alone, but that Christ is with you, and He will never leave you or forsake you. And so let's remind one another of that truth again and again and again, because we need it. And we're going to need it all the more as we grow in the future. Let's pray. Father, we want to help one another. We want to lead one another well. We want to follow one another well. We want to support one another. Lord, we want to be a church that is more and more like you. We don't want to just talk the talk. We want to walk the walk. And we know that there's a lot of difficulty in that. We're not naive, Lord. Or at least not as naive as we could be. And so we ask for grace. We ask for grace to transform us and grace to sustain us. And that's our hope is holy in you. And Lord, I'm praying for the church, for myself, because I believe you will give us the grace we need to be the church you've called us to be. Make us, Father, more Christ-like. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.